What's going on ladies and gents? It is the Big Metal Breakdown. Welcome back. We've been gone for a little bit, but as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, that we have a new studio. Hmm. Brand new. Same place, same house, same building, all that shit. But we are in a new studio. I finally redid it to where we've set it up perfectly for the YouTube page. Some things will change around eventually, but as of right now, this is what we got. Finally got some fucking sound foam here in the back. We got some fancy candles, my shitty, shitty, shitty guitar um, that I've had since I was like 12, something like that. Um, but today we are here to talk about body count. I talked about it on last episode, what we would be doing, who we would be talking about, but today we are talking about them. At the end of the episode, we'll talk about how and why we were gone for so long and uh, I appreciate you guys sticking around and still listening with us. So today we talk about body count. If you don't know who body count is, let me give you a quick rundown of who they are by giving you their Spotify bio that either they wrote themselves or had somebody write for them. It says, maybe no one saw the humor, or maybe they were distracted by the barely competent heavy metal of the album. But rapper Ice-T's heavy metal group launched a hurricane of publicity with their self-titled debut album, Body Count. Ice-T's music has been hard as heavy metal for a number of years, and on 1991's landmark album, OG Original Gangster, he recorded the speed metal hip-hop fusion Body Count with his band of the same name. So, if you've never heard of Ice-T, who are you and where, where have you been living? Because this man's been in at least my generation's life for a long time, mainly on Law & Order. Boom, boom. <laughs> anyway, so we start today's story a little different. We're going to start things off just a tad bit different, and I'm going to give you guys each and every member of the beginning of the band itself. So first, we start with Ice-T, better known, or maybe not better known, but also known as Tracy Lauren Moreau, born on February 16th, 1958. In the modern day, he's a rapper, songwriter, producer, actor, and author. We're going to start his story with his, his stint in the Army's AIT program. Tracy was sent to advanced infantry training in Fort Benning, Georgia. A young Tracy and a few of his fellow cadets, whilst doing all of their AIT training, also were running stolen goods for higher-ups in uniform. One of their commanding officers decided that they wanted them to steal this blue rug that was in the barracks or in the officer's station or whatever type of military jargon you want to use at that point. Ice-T said, One of my commanding officers singled out a bunch of us guys who seemed to have some street smarts about us. I was basically the leader, and at night we would go out on post and boost shit he wanted. Sorry for the god-awful impression of Ice-T, but it seemed more fun that way. The job, quote-unquote, fell through, which led Ice-T to end up in a minimum security facility on base. Basically, a slightly more guarded barracks than where they were before. Uh, essentially, Tracy decided to make his escape and uh, end up in L.A. to hide out and wait for the trial to end. Now, the problem with all of this is that he was running stolen goods for higher-ups. Now, 
the higher up that so happened to be getting him to steal things had been in the military for 20 plus years at that point. So working it out with him and uh, trying to figure out how to have the charges, quote unquote, dropped was actually fairly easy. Um, but on his escape, Ice-T said, I figured out a way to make the top window come down a few inches. Just enough for a skinny dude to squeeze through. I went up to the top bunk and managed to wriggle my ass out the top window. I had to time my escape so that the guards at the gates wouldn't see me. It was just like breaking out of prison. He then started, he then again left and then finished his training once he was returned and they worked out the rigmarole with the case. And I apologize if I use the word rigmarole incorrectly. Uh, after being discharged, he would use his skills as a DJ to keep himself off the streets. He decided that he didn't want to live a life of crime that had plagued him in his childhood as well as the crime that he was committing in the U.S. military. While performing as a DJ at parties, he received more attention for his rapping. A car accident during a run-in with Johnny Law would leave Ice in the hospital. Although he was doing all this DJ stuff and uh, making money doing parties, he would still kind of steal shit and meet up with some of his buddies from his childhood and do some things that may not have been quite so legal. Uh, but either way, he ended up in the hospital. And at that moment in the hospital, he had a man-to-man -man with himself. He chose against the life of crime and pursued a career in rapping. Two weeks after being released from the hospital, he entered an open mic competition judged by THE Curtis Blow, and he won. Gaining traction in his career due to the heavily, due heavily to the fact that his rap style was much more different than his than those at the time. Just to give you an idea of the artists at the time, just based off of names, we can give you an idea of the differences in Ice T versus the rest of the rappers and groups of rappers at the time. We have bands like Boogie Boys, or not bands, but groups, let's say, like Boogie Boys, The Fat Boys, Run DMC, of course, Curtis Blow, to name a few, Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh Crew, Steady B, Two Live Crew, of course, we got Salt and Pepper, um, Cool Mo D, The Skinny Boys, World's Famous Supreme Team, The World Class Wrecking Crew, LA Dream Team, The Stetasonic, and Schoolie D, amongst many others. But essentially, everything that Ice T was rapping about was everything that he went on with in his childhood and the things that he saw happen every day and during the mid 80s was a huge time in the black community for police brutality and and drugs and gun violence and things of that sort and that was the things that Ice-T rapped about and that he he wrote about that was the things that he was taught he wasn't just talking about partying and having a good time his lyrics were meaningful and that's what set him apart from so many others. Although he was rapping about gangs and gang violence and drugs and sex and all that stuff, he would avoid gang affiliation uh, just by staying away from repping any colors. Uh, he wore a mixture of red and blue clothing and shoes to avoid antagonizing gang-affiliated listeners who debated his true affiliation. Ice finally landed a deal with the label Sire Records when the labor founder and president Seymour Stein, or Steen, it might be, I think it's Stein, 
heard his demo, he said, he sounds like Bob Dylan. This man straight up just compared Ice-T to Bob fucking Dylan. Now, if you've been on the show, if you've listened to the show before, I think I've talked about Bob Dylan. Not a huge fan. I will admit he's a phenomenal, phenomenal lyricist. I just can't stand his voice. But uh, if you can imagine Ice-T singing a Bob Dylan song, it would probably go something like this. How does it feel? How does it feel to be on your own with no direction home? A complete unknown just like a rolling stone. You know, something like that. I don't know. Ed, that was an attempt. Don't, don't, don't patronize me. I'm, I'm better than that. Shortly after, he released his debut album, Rhymes Pay, or Rhyme Pays, in 1987, which was mixed and produced by DJ Evil E, DJ Aladdin, and producer Africa Islam, who helped create the mainly party-oriented sound. His next album, Power, was released in 1988 under his own label, Rhyme Syndicate. It was a more assured and impressive record, earning him strong reviews and his second gold record. Released in 1989, the iceberg freedom of speech, Just Watch What You Say, established his popularity by combining heavy lyrics with his aggressive and abrasive sound. Now that gives you a little quick note on who Ice-T is. Let's move on to the lead guitarist, Ernie Cunningham, born June 10th, 1959, better known by his stage name, Ernie C. Cunningham grew up in Compton, California and attended Crenshaw High School where he met Ice-T. Cunningham was one of the few students attending school who was interested in rock music due mainly to his influence from his uncle. He was introduced to, uh, who was introduced to Ernie, who introduced Ernie to a different groups and diverse number of styles in the genre. This influence led Ernie to buy a guitar from his local music store, and he dedicated himself to learning starting at just 12 years old. He was entirely self-taught and has continued to teach multiple, multiple artists over the years. Cunningham's guitar playing and showmanship earned him respect among his fellow students, including members of the local Crips gang. So he's got, he's, he's playing guitar yet still keeping his street cred with Crips, which is insane to me. Cunningham also taught guitar to a two fellow students, including D-Rock, the executioner, who later joined Body Count. Now, on rhythm guitar, we have Dennis Miles, September, born on September 23rd, 1959, a.k.a. D-Rock, the executioner, or more commonly known just as D-Rock. Uh, he was a rhythm guitarist for Body Count and also played guitar for his own band, Pitch Black. He referred to his style as ghetto metal. D-Rock attended Crenshaw High School with Ice-T as well as Ernie C, Beatmaster V, and Moose Man, as well as, as his later replacement, Ventrix. D-Rock performed wearing a hockey goaltender mask. A trademark fellow Body Count band member, Ernie C, started doing this to battle his shyness on stage, stating... He didn't want to be a star. He didn't want people to know his face. He just enjoyed playing music. D-Rock was found dead in his apartment in Los Angeles on August 17, 2004 at the age of 44. An autopsy later revealed that the cause of death to be lymphoma. Bandmates Ice-T has stated that, for me, honestly, after something like that, you can hear coming from a dead stop or you can go on. 
It was so emotional. We were in the middle of making a new record together, and he goes and dies. I was like, damn. I mean, D-Rock was the backbone of Body Count's sound. He went to school with Ernie and I, and for me, it was a great to bring friends from my childhood along to share in success. Words cannot explain how much we will miss D-Rock more as a friend than as a band member. Ernie C. State later stated, D-Rock was the soul of Body Count. Before any of us, before any of it was big, it was just him and me jamming in the little apartment. He was like my little brother. I taught him how to play, I watched him grow musically, and I am positive I speak for Body Count and all of our fans that he will be missed. Drummer, Victor Ray Wilson, born February 20th, 1959, better known as Beatmaster V. He grew up in the city of Los Angeles, as well as attended Crenshaw High School where he met his fellow band members. As a musician, he participated in music wherever he could, including music programs at his local church. In his community and church, as a youth, Beatmaster V practiced drums and other instruments. He excelled in his musical ability at an early age. By the time he was 11 years old, he'd played with the legendary bleaching musician uh, Lou Rowles as a drummer. He continued on and took drum classes and built more musical skills playing with various musicians, eventually playing with Ernie C. He died, not Ernie C, but, uh, but Beatmaster V, passed away April 30th, 1996 due to complications with leukemia. Bassist, Lloyd Mooseman Roberts III, born December 24, 1962. Roberts was born in Bernice, Louisiana. He attended Crenshaw High School after he moved there into L.A. Uh, as a teenager, I would assume, uh, in South Central Los Angeles, where he played in his high school band, met and became close friends with Ice-T and D-Rock. Roberts was a key writer in the early years of Body Count and contributed to greatly to the band's success. He has also played with bands such as Iggy Pop and recorded a studio album and recorded the studio album Beat 'em Up as a member of the Trolls. Iggy Pop at the time brought in Moose Man to breathe new life into his band and shake up the members and get them out of their comfort zones. Moose Man recorded the album Beat 'em Up with Iggy Pop. He was received he has received multiple awards with many bands that he has played with such as Gold Records with Body Count as well as a Hawaii Music Awards for Best World Music with Bahavi Hari, or it could be Hava, Hava, B-H-A-V-A, Hari, Hava Hari. When I tried looking up Hava Hari or Bahava Hari, uh, nothing really came up. Um, I couldn't find really any music. I couldn't find really anything. So we're just going to go off the fact that uh, good old Moose Man worked with him. Now, how did all of this come together other than the fact that they all went to Crenshaw High School? These men would come together after releasing the album, after Ice-T released the album, OG Original Gangster, Original Gangster, got a mush mouth today, which is regarded as one of the albums that defined gangster rap. On OG, Ice-T introduced his heavy metal band Body Count in the track of the same name as we spoke about before in the bio. The album Body Count, after the album OG Original Gangster, was released in March of 1992. Ernie C. and Ice-T originally planned for the album to be dark and ominous with a satanic lyrical theme in the style of Black Sabbath. However, Ice-T felt that basing his lyrics in reality would be scarier than the fantasy basis of Black Sabbath's lyrics. 
The inner artwork depicts a man with a gun pointed at the viewer's face. Ice-T states, to us, that was the devil. What's more scary than some gangster with a gun pointed at you? Ice-T defined the resulting mix of heavy metal and reality-based lyrics as a rock album with a rap mentality. The album's musical style is primarily described as speed metal, thrash metal, and heavy metal. John Perilous of the New York Times wrote that with Body Count, Ice-T has uh, recognized a kinship between his gangster rap and post-punk hardcore rock, both of which break taboos to titillate fans, but where rap core's audience, where rap's core audience is presumably in the inner city, hardcore appeals mostly to sub suburbanites seeking more gritty thrills than what they can find from the Nintendo or local mall. Body Count toured on their first annual Lollapalooza concert tour in 1991 alongside such bands as Jane's Addiction, Nine Inch Nails, Susie and the Banshees, Rollins, Ro the Rollins Band, excuse me, uh, Living Color, and the Butthole Surfers, gaining appeal among middle-class teenagers and fans of alternative music genres. Ice-T won a Grammy Award for the Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group, an award shared by others uh, who worked on the track, including Jones and fellow muse uh, jazz musician Ray Charles. Now that we know about the band itself as far as the members go, what were the albums and famous singles that they had that were in their discography? Despite Ice-T's attempts to differ differentiate body count from his work in the hip-hop genre, the press focused solely on the rap's group or the rap group on the group's rap image. <laughs> uh, as far as singles go, the song Cop Killer comes to mind. The rock song was intended to speak from the viewpoint of a criminal getting revenge on a racist, brutal cop. Ice T's rock song infuriated government officials, the National Rifle Association, and various police advocacy groups. Ice-T felt that politicians had intentionally referred to the song Cop Killer as, a rap, as rap to provoke negative criticism. Ice-T said, There's absolutely no way to listen to the song Cop Killer and call it a rap record. It's so far from rap, but politically, they know say, by saying the word rap, they can get a lot of people who think rap black, rap black ghetto, and don't like it. They say the word rock, people say, Oh, I like Jefferson Airplane. I like Fleetwood Mac. That's rock. They don't use... They don't want to use the word rock and roll to describe this song. Consequently, Time Warner, Time Warner Music refused to release Ice-T's upcoming album, Home Invasion, because of the controversy surrounding Cop Killer. Ice-T suggested the reactions to the song was an overreaction, telling journalist Chuck Phillips, they've done movies about nursing ki nurse killers and teacher killers and student killers. Arnold Schwarzenegger blew away dozens of cops as a Terminator, but I don't hear anybody complaining about that. In the same interview, Ice-T suggested to Phillips that the misunderstanding of Cop Killer, the misclassification of it as a rap song, not a rock song, and the attempts to censor it had racial overtones. The Supreme Court says it's okay for a white man to burn a cross in public, but nobody wants a black man to write a record about a cop killer. In 1993, Body Count recorded the cover of Hey Joe for the Jimi Hendrix tribute album Stone Free, a, Jim, a tribute to Jimi Hendrix. In the liner notes, Ice-T dedicated the album to all the people of color throughout the entire world, Asia, Asian, Latino, Native American, Hawaiian, Italian, Indian, Persian, African, Aboriginal, and any other nationality that white supremacists would love to see born 
Dead. Born Dead, released September 6, 1994 on Virgin Records, peaked at number 74 on the Billboard 200 and was their second album. Violent Demise and The Last Days, released on March 11, 1997 by Virgin Records. Uh, it was the last album to feature drummer Beatmaster V, who died of leukemia, as we said before, following the recording of the album, which was dedicated to him. Prior to the recording of Body Count's third album, Violent Demise and The Last Days in 97, bassist Moose Man left the group and was replaced by Grizz. Beatmaster V died of leukemia soon after the album was completed, and the new drummer named O.T. filled the position. Bassist Grizz left the band later on, and in the meanwhile, former bassist Moose Man was shot in a drive-by shooting in February of 2001 after the recording of an album and preparing for another tour with Iggy Pop on his band The Trolls. In late 2004, rhythm guitarist D-Rock had died to complications from lymphoma, leaving only Ice-T and Ernie C from the original lineup. After the death and all of this crazy transitioning period where we had guys leaving the band, new guys entering the band, the band then took an extended hiatus for a couple years. In regards to the future of Body Count, Ernie C stated, We will carry on the band. I don't know if it will be Body Count, but in some form, Ice and I will always play together. Once the band acquired Bendrix as their new rhythm guitarist, work on the album resumed. Murder for Hire, their fourth album, was released on August 1st, 2006, their first album in nine years. Its album cover, featuring Uncle Sam holding a cardboard sign reading, Will Kill for Money, compares the United States military to contact, contract killers. Ice-T later told Esquire magazine he wasn't satisfied with the way the albums came out because he wasn't as involved in the project as he usually tries to be. I kind of melded in. They wrote the music in LA and sent me the tracks. I wrote the lyrics and just kind of walked away. I didn't mix it, I didn't do anything, and record. And the record suffered. Now at this time, Ice-T had spent his stint years in Law & Order, Chun-Chun, but he was, uh, he was still in Body Count. They still had Body Count going, so he wanted to make sure that he was giving as much attention to it as he possibly could, but clearly he did not feel as though it was worth what he gave it. Mike Sullivan of Explore Music caught up with Ernie C. at the 2010 edition of the Vans Warp Tour. Ernie C. divulged in this interview that the band was recording its fifth studio album. Body Count wrote an exclusive song for the Gears of War, uh, an exclusive song, The Gears of War, for the video game Gears of War 3, and performed it at a party promoting the game. On December 9, 2012, Ice-T announced on Twitter that Body Count would begin production on its fifth studio album in January of 2013. The following day, Ice-T revealed that Body Count has signed with Sumerian Records. Ice-T suggested the album was going, to be a, was going to be titled Rise, with an exclamation point, or Manslaughter. On May 10, 2013, Ice-T announced that the work on the fifth studio album had begun and it would be titled Manslaughter. The album was released on June 10, 2014. On November 9, 2013, Garcia joined Body Count featuring Ice-T on vocals on, on rhythm guitar for a live performance in Austin, Texas at the Fun 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 Festival and is now a full-time member of the band after completing a full U.S. tour to support the release of the Manslaughter album as part of the Rockstar Energy Drink Mayhem Festival. John Hoot Hadusek of Consequences of Sound gave the album a B-, saying, 
Lyrically and musically, Manslaughter is easily Body Count's most inspired work since their self-titled debut. Because it sounds like a reconciliation of all the misconceptions that the band had to deal with in the past. It's a statement of intent with of intent this time. They want to be heard no matter who gets offended or pissed off. If you can't take it, don't listen. If you can, then stop talking shit and enjoy the ride. Their sixth studio album, Bloodlust, was released on March 31st, 2017 via Century Media Records. On December 28th, 2016, Ice-T posted a preview of the first single, No Lives Matter, on Twitter. Multiple guest musicians were confirmed to appear on the album, as well, uh, including Max Cavalera of The Cavalera Conspiracy, Randy Blythe of Lamb of God, and Dave Mustaine of Megadeth. Upon the release of Bloodlust, it was confirmed that Ice-T's son, Tracy Moreau Jr., a.k.a. Little Ice, is now a part of the band and performs backing vocals. The track Here I Go Again was re-recorded uh, as a demo track from Ice-T's Return of the Real Sessions. In its first week, Bloodlust debuted at number three in the UK rock and metal charts. The track Black Hoodie was nominated for the Best Metal Performance at the 60th Annual Grammy Awards, the second track, No Lives Matter, deals with innocent African-American citizens who have been killed by cops. The third track, All Love is Lost, is about husbands who are having an affair with their mistresses behind their wives' backs and featured Max Cavalier on guitar and vocals. On May 28, In May 2018, Ice-T revealed to Loudwire that Body Count will enter the studio around September to start recording tracks for their seventh studio album, Carnivore. On the meeting of the album's title, the rapper said, It's basically fuck vegans. We figure anything carnivorous pretty much kicks ass. We're, carnivore, uh, we're carnivorous. I'm not really saying fuck vegans. Everyone's so pussy right now, so we're carnivores. So a really odd way to uh, combat vegans by creating an entire album called Carnivore. But <laughs> nonetheless... Uh, they are now seven albums in on their discography. They're working on their eighth album with these new members, with past members uh, either leaving or passing. Uh, they've been through a lot. They've been through thousands and thousands of album sales. And regardless of the fact that their lyrics are so politically and socially charged, they seem to have kind of stuck under the radar for a, a good while. If you're if you're a pretty heavy slash metal and speed metal fan, you may know about Body Count, but to the common listener, Body Count may not be so prominent in your playlist. Uh, as far as their influence goes, Body Count has been credited for pioneering the rap metal genre popularized by groups such as Rage Against the Machine and Limp Bizkit. Now, if you asked Ice-T and some of the guys from Body Count, they probably wouldn't be too happy if you said that they were what helped make Limp Bizkit. But uh, I'm just going to sip my water um, incoherently. Oh, okay. There was a piece of ice in there. Ah. Uh. Ernie C. stated that a lot of rappers want to be in a rock band, but it has to be done sincerely. You can't just get anybody on guitar and expect it to work. We really loved the music we were doing, and it showed. Just the matter of having a famous gangster rapper in a rock band alone can influence just as much, uh, just as much 
as a deliberate choice to combine rap lyrics and the flow of rap lyrics with the music from a completely different genre like in metal. In the mid-80s, Ice-T brought new life into rap music, and even though it's had its greats, uh, it was starting to become hokey and much more of a verbalized version of essentially disco. So when he came around in the mid-80s and blew people's faces off with literally talking about blowing people's faces off, it was something that no one expected. It wasn't anything. It was the same thing if you've seen the movie Straight Outta Compton or you know anything about N.W.A., it was very similar to something like that. Obviously, they were in L.A. He was also in L.A., but they were kind of neck and neck as far as that goes. I believe Ice-T started a tad bit sooner, but also he... I like to consider Ice-T more of a renaissance man in a sense, some way. Um, but just like in the mid-'80s when Body Count came onto the scene... Although it, had, uh, although it may not have breathed new life into the scene, it did give a much different perspective to the average metal listener. There had not been much change in regards to style or sound over the years of Body Count, but with lyrics like, Cop killer, it's better you than me. Cop killer, fuck police brutality. Cop killer, I know your mama grieving, fuck them. Cop killer, but tonight we got him even. Yeah. Wouldn't you expect a uh, sea change with not only the metal community, but uh, uh, but how both rap and metal can be perceived as genres from the public? I mean, just just the fact that you could chalk it up to, oh, Ice-T and Body Count were essentially the inception, if you don't include the uh, combination of Run DMC and Aerosmith, or of Anthrax and Public Enemy, with their song Bring the Noise. Um, Ice-T is a crucial part, in my opinion, of the rap rock, rap metal genre. Uh, but Body Count has always been hard-hitting and abrasive with their lyrics and their social view. It kind of... It, it had to have influenced guys like Rage Against the Machine in some way. I mean, it, with Public Enemy, you, of course, got a very socially and politically charged sound, but... They were doing rap. Flavor Flav and Chuck D were doing rap. Not until Anthrax came around and were like, "Hey, let's do a do a um, a collaboration." Did any of this ever come into place? But of course, you'd run DMC as well. And so it was kind of these three guys, these three, I guess technically five groups, um, within their own way, were contributing significantly to a sound that I absolutely love. I, I mean, I've talked about it before on the show, how important new metal and how rap metal and rock have influenced me incredibly. I mean, we're maybe wearing an Iron Maiden shirt if you are uh, watching on the podcast on YouTube, but these bands have changed my life, honestly, for the better. It, I, I found new metal bands and rap rock and rap metal bands. I mean, you could even consider technically Chili Peppers. They have a funk type situation, but you don't get Anthony Kiedis' vocals without uh, influences like Chuck D and, and, and Ice-T and stuff like that. You just don't. It just doesn't happen. It, it, seed changes have to happen within subgenres of music for any of this to ever make sense to anyone. If we didn't have Ice-T 
Chuck D, fucking uh, DMC and Rev Run, and then you include all the rock and metal bands into it, you, it just wouldn't happen. So the fact that Body Count, more than any of the other bands in, in what I'm talking about, has the least amount of recognition is insane to me. I think it's because, and, and this is just my personal opinion, but I think it's because what ended up happening was bands like Metallica and of course Anthrax and stuff like that, they had their sound, but they stuck to that same sound. When Body Count combined two sounds, but then they also included it in speed metal and thrash metal, it can kind of seem off a little bit. I like Body Count. They're not my favorite, if we're being completely honest. But regardless, Crenshaw High, Crenshaw High School, not Hard School, what the fuck? Crenshaw High School and the hard streets of LA shaped these men into not only the band Body Count, but also into social activists, influencers, and overall pioneers of the rap rock and rap metal genre, even though they wouldn't consider it that way. Technically, in their minds, they're a rock band. Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys real quick about where we've been for a while, where I've been, what we've been doing, uh, as well as some of these new albums that have come out. I am absolutely in love with so many of these albums that we've followed and talked about here on the podcast before, and new ones that are coming. We're super, super excited for the new shit, man. Give me all the new shit. Uh, so as far as us, um, b right after I released Kill Switches episode, uh, Paris ended up having a death in the family. Um, everything's okay now. People are, are, are where they're supposed to be. Everybody's fine. Uh, but there was a passing, and so we had to take some time off for that, go see family, spend time with people, make sure everybody was taken care of, things of that sort. So thank you guys ahead of time for your condolences. Um, as far as all that goes, um, I also had to take the time to redo the studio. I'm trying to get it ready for making more and more content for you guys, more and more things that you can consume and enjoy. Uh, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming to the YouTube page. Um, as I said before with last week's or last time's episode, I guess it wasn't last week at this point. But thank you guys for bearing with us, for real. Um, I've been seeing steady listenership, even though we've been gone for three fucking weeks. Uh, but you guys will, from now on, get exclusive stuff here on the audio version of this podcast, mainly because I can't do some of the stuff I want to do on YouTube based off of them trying to demonetize everything. So the best way to help us out on YouTube is to just like and subscribe. For real, it, it just it increases the amount of viewership we can get and the amount of people that will see and listen to the podcast. Um, there's going to be other things coming to the YouTube channel as well. Um, personally, for me, I'm trying to learn how to properly play guitar. If you look on the YouTube channel, I have my shitty guitar that I talk about from when I grew up. Uh, I plan on doing a couple of videos with that uh, once I actually get decent at it. But I'm, I'm slowly trying to learn and and increase my mental acuity as well as as gain a skill ultimately and so 
doing that, a lot of things are coming, so I've been working on that. So we're going to hope that that turns out uh, okay, I guess. Um, now, as far as these new albums go, dude, this shit is getting ridiculous. I talked to you guys last week, or last time, about Killswitch's new album. Um, I listened to it probably a dozen more times after talking with you guys, and I've got some new info. I guess not info, a new opinions, I guess you could say, about it. Uh, I said before that the album overall is pretty solid and that there wasn't any uh, outliers like as far as, as, as how good the songs were. But if you've had time to listen to it, I'm telling you, man, they've gotten signal fire as far as how good it is, it's fucking insane. I talked about it, I basically slow stroked it the entire time in last last time's episode in the last episode, but that song is phenomenal, as well as songs like Crownless King and Ravenous. I love the uh, melody on Ravenous, and uh, it's just, it's gotten, that album now has become in my heavy rotation constantly. It's, all right, what am I going to listen to? All right, I'm going to listen to Killswitch today. What's it going to be? Atonement. And that's that's what happens. It just It just ends up that way. And I'm happy about it. I think they fucking killed it with this album. I was trying to be as little biased as possible, being such a huge fan of them. But they fucking knocked that shit out of the park. I love it. They were just, they, they killed it. I, I think they did a great job. Jesse and Adam and the rest of the guys, they just, they knocked it out of the park, dude. And I'm, I'm super proud of them because they just, they fucking killed it. I love it so much. I can't, I can't stop. I, I can't stop listening to it. I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, I love the album cover. I actually follow the artist on Instagram now. Uh, dude makes some killer shit. Um, you can go through uh, Killswitch's Instagram and find the artist and stuff like that. But I just don't have it in front of me. But yeah, they, they fucking killed it. Now, I think two weeks ago at this point, Knocked Loose dropped their new album, Different Shades of Blue. Dude. Dude. That album is fucking ridiculous like straight up the amount of breakdowns alone can give you an aneurysm it's insane songs like i uh and still i wonder south is excellent the the break the main breakdown i guess you could say because there's like a dozen in each one of knock loose's songs the the main breakdown and still i wonder south is nasty as fuck mistakes like fractures you can sing along to as much as you can sing to uh that lead singer's voice um and a serpent's tongue has a very interesting play oh god what is her name i feel like shit now because i didn't write it down um different not different different <laughs> different shades there we go okay let's try this oh emma boster emma boster is actually um she is god i feel like a fucking asshole emma boster i didn't write this down because i was rushing with these notes after this fucking hiatus um Oh, I'm sorry. She is the lead vocalist for Dying Wish. 
Um, I haven't checked out Dying Wish. I maybe should after this. Um, but A Serpent's Tongue is a fucking dirty one, too. Uh, so if you haven't checked out that album yet, I would definitely check that out. It is filthy beyond belief, especially if you are a hardcore kid like myself. Um, so, Tool finally released that new album we were talking about with the Perfect Circle episode. Uh, and apparently it beat out Taylor fucking Swift for number one album in America. I just saw the Loudwire post today. That is fucking wild. Tool, the band we haven't heard from in over 13 years, has beat out Taylor fucking Swift for number one album in America. You realize how hard that is to get nowadays as a rock group, as a metal group? I guess Tool's technically considered more progressive rock than metal, but they definitely have their metal influences, of course. And they've influenced thousands of metal bands. Um, they're, this, this new album is, in my opinion, okay. Um, songs like Tempest have been praised... And I thought it was okay. Honestly, in my opinion, it's okay. Uh, Numa looks like it's their number one right now. Uh, Fear Inoculum has like 13 million listens on Spotify. Uh, the, the song, not the album. The album has a shit ton. They sold 270,000 copies. We've talked about it on the show before. The differences now in streaming versus actual purchases of albums and for a huge band to make a top 10 you're looking at maybe maybe a hundred thousand physical copies being sold tools sold over 270,000 so clearly I'm just the one missing this because I thought Fear Inoculum was honestly just fine I feel like the 13 years they made us wait for it is insane, especially since now they're coming out with articles saying that Maynard James Keenan said that it was good 11 years ago. Well, you know what? Why didn't it come out 11 years ago? Why? And now I get a text from my buddy Big Mike, who has been on the podcast before. We actually need to get him back on here. Mike, if you're listening to this, get back here. We're going to talk about some shit. We're going to talk about some shit that we want to talk about, like how ridiculous it is that Tool is selling front row tickets for $1,000. $1,000. At least where I am in North Carolina, they are touring right now, and they're going to be at the PNC Arena, and they are selling $1,000 tickets, at least some of the resale value. But their cheapest tickets are over $100, and those are the nosebleeds of the nosebleeds. I don't know if I've talked about this before on the show, but it blows my fucking mind that artists are willing to charge that much for you to come see them. After seeing Metallica in concert, I'm overseeing bands in arenas and in coliseums. I'm done with it. I love the personability of a club show or a venue, sh a small venue show. It's just better, in my opinion. But also, I'm the one that likes to get in the pit, swing my arms around, and have a good time. 
I'm not there to just stand and listen to music. If I wanted to do that, I'd just put headphones in. I don't want to spend over a car payment to go see someone one time, especially Tool nonetheless. Not that they're not great showmen, but they don't make the music about the performance. They make the music about the music, which is fine. But if I'm going to do that, I'm just going to listen to them now that they have everything on fucking streaming. I'm just going to listen to it on streaming. That's as simple as that. It's not like I'm not, that I don't like Tool or that I don't want to listen to them. It's just a matter of, I'm going to prioritize my money into better things than spending $1,000 on seats, man. It's crazy to me. We spent $200 on those Metallica tickets a piece. We were in the fucking nosebleeds. We were six rows from the top. I, it just blows my mind. I get making money, and now that they're these huge bands, they have an incredible amount of overhead. But don't you think if they're selling 20,000 tickets, they really need to sell it for $1,000 for like maybe a quarter of it? It just blows my mind. And that's where I think that... I, I wouldn't consider it selling out because they are making money, and that's fine. But there's a disconnect at some point where it no longer becomes about the live experience. It more becomes about, we're just going to do a show. You're going to come, you're going to pay your money, you're going to like it. And then you're going to go home. When I leave a venue show, a small venue show where I've been jumping around, sweating my ass off and getting knocked over. I come out of there with the biggest fucking rush because of the experience. The whole thing was encompassing. When I was sitting in those stands at the Metallica show, it wasn't that I didn't like Metallica. It was just that I felt disconnected. I felt like I wasn't part of the show. When you're up close and that singer's spitting in your face from his screaming and you're jumping around and there's lights flashing and stuff and you can touch the stage or touch the, the barrier or the barricade, it just feels so much better in my opinion to have that than to go spend a couple thousand dollars or $1,000 or so, and then buy a shit ton of merch, and then go home, basically have just seen a theater performance. That's my thought. What are your thoughts on the new album, on them charging so much fucking money for tickets to a show? Uh, it, it Again, it just it blows my mind. As far as that goes, the, the, that can be left up to, to each your own. What, what do you want to spend your money on? How big of a tool fan are you? And uh, for me, that's just, it, ultimately, it's just not worth it. Now, what might be worth it is this new Corn album. Have you guys heard the new fucking singles that they released? Cold is dirty as shit. We played it on the show, and uh, I'm impressed with it as far, and as well as uh, the two other singles that were released. Those are pretty solid as well. That comes out in three days, I guess two days from about the time you guys will hear this episode. Uh, September 13th is when The Nothing comes out from Korn. Uh, I feel like Korn is one of those bands that has grown significantly with their uh, audience. They've not only slowly kept their original listeners by, by sticking to a lot of their roots and still having that heavy plucking bass sound they just get so fucking well monkey is phenomenal at that shit and so is all the guys playing and and jonathan davis's lyrics have always been 
hard-hitting and emotional, and even though now that he's lost his wife, he is he is not lost. He is not. He has not lost his flair. Um, and I'm, I'm super stoked to, to hear about it. I'm going to try and talk about it on the show on the next episode. Um, but it, I'm, I'm just, I'm super excited. Uh, and there's a lot of things coming within the next month or so that uh, we can really expect and that I'm super excited about as a metalhead, as a, as a lover of music, as well as the fucking... Oh my god, have you guys heard the new Post Malone shit? I know that he's not technically considered a metal artist, but uh, from things that I've heard, he was actually in a metal band before he became a SoundCloud rapper. And then, of course, he blew up and became who he is today. But he just released a new uh, album. um, God, what's it called? I just I, I didn't prepare for this part because I knew I was just going to be riffing. Uh, Hollywood uh, Hollywood's bleeding, yeah, Hollywood's bleeding. But on this album, uh, of course, we wouldn't consider it a metal album. But uh, he has a song in there, track nine, "Take What You Want," featuring Ozzy fucking Osbourne. Now, for us as metalheads and as people who listen to, to and enjoy metal and rock music, Ozzy Osbourne's a fucking god. He is literally the prince of darkness. But what has happened, and if you've looked online, significantly there has been this outpouring of, oh, that's so cool, who's this Ozzy Osbourne guy? Post Malone made him famous. And I'm sitting here going, bitch, what? Did you just say that the Prince of Darkness was made famous by a curly-haired dude who has tattoos on his face? Not that I don't like Post Malone, but if it weren't for Ozzy, Post Malone wouldn't fucking be here. I just It's simple as that. We would not have the sound that we get from Post Malone, if you enjoy it or not, without Ozzy. It just doesn't happen. You don't have that dark broodingness that Post Malone can have without being influenced by bands like Black Sabbath and by his... Uh, uh, solo band for Ozzy it just doesn't work that way and so it's just funny to me that now it's it's funny as well as incredibly amazing that now because of Post Malone and because of this collaboration now you have allowed an entire generation of kids all these new Gen Z kids that are listening to Post Malone and all these SoundCloud rappers and stuff, they're now finally getting the opportunity, if they haven't before, to now enter an entirely new genre of music, literally starting at its formation. We consider Tony Iommi the godfather of metal, but Ozzy is one of the forefathers. With Black Sabbath starting out that whole sound with the drop detuning and all that stuff, to now allow multiple thousands if not millions of people to either re-experience or experience Ozzy and metal music as a whole now because they've gotten this crossover this is a perfect perfect segue from what we were talking about before about how we're just combining all these great things and allowing people to find influence in different areas 
and now find other things that they would enjoy. I mean, it, we talked about it with, with Knock Loose, with having different people from different bands. I mean, the, the collaborations are just fucking phenomenal. I'm so happy that Post Malone and Ozzy got together on this. I'm so, Honestly, I'm legitimately surprised that Ozzy did it, um, mainly because it, the song that he's in is not actually really a rock song. There's guitar in it, and there's drums in it, and stuff like that, but it, it definitely sounds like a SoundCloud rapper song. It's not predominantly heavy in the metal uh, genre. So it's super cool to me that Ozzy ended up doing something so out in left field for him and is now allowed for uh, so many people to experience metal in a new way. We're going to end up with a whole generation of metal heads in the coming years that are going to go, oh, the first thing I ever heard from metal was Ozzy Osbourne on Post Malone's song. And that is so cool to me to see something at its infancy like that. Because that album, that Bleeding Hollywood album, is going to blow the fuck up everywhere. It already has. It's already crazy. It's already got millions of listens and stuff. And it's been out for uh, like maybe a couple weeks at this point. I mean, it, it it's crazy. He's got 17 fucking songs on here. Other artists that he's got... You got Meek Mill and Lil Baby, Halsey and Future, uh, Young Thug, stuff like that, and then Ozzy Osbourne. And the fact that that is a thing is so cool to me. I fucking love it. It's awesome. And I'm super excited about what's going to come from it. I'm excited to see where it goes and what happens with it. Um, now, before we get out of here, of course I'm going to give you guys a little bit of the in-between. Of course, you guys know what the in-between is. If you don't, it is the songs that I listen to over the course of doing my research for the episode's artist. Um, because I've been gone for a couple weeks, I'm going to give you guys more than the average two that we usually do. Um, there's some old stuff, some new stuff, and then a surprise for you pop punk and metalcore fans coming at the end. So the first song we talk about today is an oldie but a goodie. It is Beautiful Disaster by 311.
Beautiful Disaster is a song recorded by the band 311 and is released in 1997. It is the third and final single from the album Transistor. Couldn't find a whole lot of information on this one, but as far as the song goes, I love that reggae undertone, the the vibe that 311 gets. I haven't really listened to a whole lot of 311. I know they kind of got a lot of shit because of uh, some of the audience they attracted, and that's fine. Um, a lot of new metal, and, and, and they're not new metal, but a lot of bands during that time were catching a lot of, of shit just based off of the, the people that listened to it, which I don't think is fair. Um, but either way, 311 are one that I want to dig into a little bit more, and eventually we will do an episode on 311 one day. But Beautiful Disaster is one that just happened. I just happened upon, and I really enjoyed, and I wanted to share with you guys. On to the next song. It is Where the Wind Blows by Blacktop Mojo. information goes but I did pull this off of their official website for Blacktop Mojo uh, 
a hard-driving southern rock unit based out of Palestine, Texas, Blacktop Mojo's fiery blend of post-grunge, classic rock, and metal falls somewhere between Soundgarden, Blackstone Cherry, and Leonard Skinner. Founded in 2012 by frontman James and drummer Nathan Gillis, Matt James and drummer Nathan Gillis, the band eventually morphed into a five-piece with the addition of bass player Matt Curtis and guitarist Ryan Kiefer and Chuck Wepfer. They released their debut album, I Am, in 2014, followed by a heavy bout of touring that saw the group sharing the stage with a wide array of heavy hitters, including Bon Jovi, Sammy Hagar, Candlebox, Daryl DMC McDaniels, Blackstone Cherry, Shaman's Harvest, Pop Evil, Puddle of Mud, and Drowning Pool. Uh, now, this is not the Drowning Pool that uh, Bodies came out with, but it is Drowning Pool nonetheless. Um, yeah, man, uh, this, these ones, this guy, these guys kind of came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting this type of sound, but I, of course, you guys know I'm into the post grunge and the sludge metal and stuff like that, and uh, of course, you got classic rock influences. So, Blacktop Mojo are definitely ones to listen to if you are into stuff like that. Um, along the same lines of that, we have the band Crowbot with their song Keep Me Down. <laughs> Released off their newest album, Mother Brain. One of the three singles released prior to Mother Brain's album, to the Mother Brain album, which was released on August 23rd, 2019. So if you were into Crowbot and you didn't know about the new album, uh, you're not really into Crowbot. But <laughs> uh, I just started recently listening to them. I really like them. They ha definitely have a unique sound. The video for Keep Me Down is actually pretty funny. Um, there's a lot of comments that they sound like clutch in a way. Uh, I could see the similarities. I feel like Keep Me Down is a little bit, or, or not Keep Me Down, but Crowbot is a little bit more, 
Um, they have a little bit more melody to them, where I think Clutch may be missing that a bit. I feel like Crobot could probably go farther in the uh, mainstream, I guess you could say, than Clutch. So to compare the two is a little skewed, but obviously they were poking fun at themselves in the music video for Keep Me Down. And check that out if you have not, and definitely check the rest of the song out. Now, as far as next episode, I'm not going to say next week because I can't promise that we're going to be here next week, but I will do my best. Um, next week is one I'm very excited about, one that has been in the back of my mind for a while and that I've been around this band probably the majority of my music listening career. Um, of course, I've told you guys before about my experience as a child with growing up very Christian parents listening to only Christian music. Um, this band was one of the first ones that I ever listened to outside of the Christian rock and Christian metal subgenre. And uh, it's kind of all sprouted from there if we don't include that earlier part of uh, my childhood. But without further ado, I give you a downfall of us all by a day to remember. <laughs> for a feathered hair generation by a day to remember from their third studio album homesick the downfall of us all was posted on the group's myspace page profile on january 26 2009 prior to its release on homesick this is back in the myspace days y'all i wasn't even allowed to have a myspace but i found out about this band from a friend of mine from middle school that showed me this song specifically and it rooted the beginnings of my pop punk uh, and I guess you could consider it metalcore. Um, it, it was it was how I was introduced to uh, that those subgenres as a whole. The music video premiered through MTV2 on March 3rd of that same year, and the track was released on alternative radio stations on May on May 26th. In February of 2014. The track was uh, certified gold by the RIAA, and uh, I'm really excited about next week's episode. Um, a day to remember, like I said, have been a part of my life since middle school. Uh, they they've had a they've done so much 
for the community, and we're going to talk about that next episode. But for me, they they were the epitome to me of the pop punk metalcore mixture subgenre that they encompassed, and they fucking knocked that shit out of the park. Um, so next week is a day to remember. If you are a day to remember fan, if you got some of those ridiculous shirts they used to sell, wear that shit while you're listening. Send me a photo. Send me an email. Let me know what you think. Let me know what other bands you want me to break down on the next episode or future episodes as well. You can check out all the links to all of our stuff, our One Fit Clothing, our Amazon link, all that stuff in the description. And I will see you guys next time with a day to remember.